The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Something I believe in so strongly is this. Take your talents, your education, your experience, your passions, and apply those to creating a vegan world. Sure, you can learn new things and use those too, But what makes you special and what makes you powerful is who you are and what you have and using who they are and what they have for this cause are wonderful characteristics of my guests on this episode of the Main Street Vegan Program. Thank you for listening. I am Victoria Moran, your host. I'm so happy to have you with us. You can find out more about what goes on in the whole world of Main Street Vegan on our website, MainStreetVegan.net, where you can also find our show notes and learn more about both of today's guests. After the break, I'll be talking with Jane Velez Mitchell. Yes, the Jane Velez Mitchell from CNN and HLN and that wonderful broadcast history. And now she is a full-time animal rights and vegan media force, Jane Unchained. We will be talking to her and getting all the scoop on what she's up to. And now it is my pleasure to introduce or really reintroduce, because she's coming back, I believe, for the third time on the program, one of my favorite authors and one of my favorite people, Camille DeAngelis. She's the author of several novels full of delightfully impossible things. She's also written A Travel Guide to Ireland and a book of nonfiction called Life Without Envy, Ego Management for Creative People. Her young adult novel, Bones and All, won an Alex Award from the American Library Association. And her newest book is A Bright, Clean Mind. Veganism for Creative Transformation. Welcome from Providence, Rhode Island, Camille DeAngelis. Thank you so much for having me back, Victoria. It's so lovely to be back with you. Well, thank you for writing continually amazing and delightful books. Oh, shucks. <laughs> so we met back in 2013 when I had the honor of your presence in a Main Street Vegan Academy course. And 
oh my goodness, you were prolific before that and you've been super prolific since then. So tell us a little bit about your work and what you do and about this brand new book. Yeah, so I started out, I mean, I still am a novelist, of course. I'm primarily a novelist. And I, I like to tell people that I get enough real life in, in real life. So I don't write things that could happen in real life. Um, so I'm taking a little break from fiction at the moment to write about veganism and creativity and the connection I've found, uh, which I wrote about in, um, you know, a little sidebar in your book, The Good Karma Diet. So folks can read that if they haven't already. Um, and so I actually, uh, it's funny that like a seed for this book was planted in your book. So, so that's pretty cool. That so, is cool. Yeah. So I started writing these sneaky, I call them sneaky self-help books because uh, they're written for people who say they never read self-help books. <laughs> so my first one, which came out in 2016, is called Life Without Envy, Ego Management for Creative People, which is one of those, you know, does what it says on the tin kind of kind of subtitles, which is which is great. People are always, their interest is always peaked in, in when they hear the, the title of that book. And so... A Bright Clean Mind kind of came out of that because I was talking about what I called compassionate eating um, as a way to work on, uh, you know, keeping one's ego in check and maintaining one's emotional health in the face of, you know, all kinds of creative setbacks, you know, what everyone has to uh, deal with and be resilient in, in response to. So, yeah, so so The Bright Clean Mind came out of that. And I, I like to say that I've actually been writing it since I since the day I went vegan, um, gathering so much wisdom from so many different vegans. And and it's interesting. I, I've also gained a lot of wisdom from people who I call future vegans. They're not vegan yet. Um, but when you read their work, you would think that they would be. Um, so I, I definitely reference some of those folks in the book, too. So the book is for, I mean, I wrote it to benefit people who, creative people, highly, highly creative people um, who feel a lot of anxiety and depression, and they haven't made the connection yet between their cravings for bacon and cheese and all of those horrible animal foods and these dark feelings uh, that they are continually experiencing. So I wrote the book for them. But, you know, as I sort of suspected, um, you know, my, my main readership is people who are more open to uh, veganism and plant-based eating. So I'm finding that the people who are giving me good feedback, good early feedback on the book are people who are already veg curious. That's a real, real trick, Camille, to try to get the people who need this most, the people who mm -hmm. have never thought of it, mm -hmm. to think I mean, about it. Yeah, and I've had the conversation, you know, whenever people talk about feeling anxiety and those those other awful feelings, I, I say, have you thought about changing your diet? And I immediately, you know, this resistance, this wall of resistance goes up. And then as soon as possible, of course, they change the subject. But it's really interesting, right? Because creative people get credit for being open-minded and being, you know, um, mavericks, you know, free thinkers, but we're not. <laughs> um, and that's the, that's the irony that I feel like I, I've been writing this book around. And yet you found quite a few who are. 
uh, yes. the people that you interviewed in this book. And one of the things that's so wonderful about A Bright, Clean Mind is you bring in people who are creative and artistic in probably not every kind of way that a human can be creative on this planet, but you certainly cover lots of, of, of arts and lots of, of, of creative people. So tell us about some of your favorites. Oh my gosh, I can't answer that question. You know, you know who I will, who the person I am going to plug actually is Risa Branch, who is not in the book. I mentioned her really briefly because we had only just met while I was writing the book. Um, but she is a vegan jazz singer from, uh, well, she's from Texas, but she lives in Brooklyn. And I, uh, my interview with her on Tenderly, which is um, this new uh, publication on media, well, new, it came out, it's, it started over the summer. And it's, have you, have you read any Tenderly articles yet? I it's have a, not. Oh, I have to send you the link because it's a wonderful, wonderful medium publication with all kinds of, um, all kinds of wonderful articles from, you know, every angle of vegan living. And so, you know, it's a natural fit for what I'm doing. So I've been working with, um, Summer Burton is the name of the editor and she's wonderful. She does wonderful work. So um, she was interested in my interviewing Risa Branch, who I had met the previous, I, I met her last year. And she is this fascinating singer. She started out recording, um, performing and recording electro soul music, and, but she had always been such a, a jazz uh, aficionado and had been singing it, saying gospel. Um, and then she uh, eventually circled back to it and she uh, released her debut jazz album. It's her sophomore release, but her debut jazz album uh, about six months ago. And it is, it is wonderful. Um, so I will, um, I can send you that link if you want to put it in the show notes. So I'm going to, I'm going to plug Risa because she, she embodies that centeredness that I have seen in so many vegan artists. There is a calm and a centeredness to her and a feeling of purpose, uh, deep purpose in her work because she feels that she had this great line and that's actually the title of the article, not every singer is here to start the party, which I just loved because she feels that her music has and her voice has a healing quality and I have and I've written about this in the article but she I totally felt that um, as I was listening to her music I was actually feeling a little bit of anxiety because I was under a book deadline and I was listening to her music and I and I felt you know my anxiety sort of melting from me when I heard her voice so you know I think coming from another artist it could have been kind of you know new a little too new agey you know even though we love new age um, but you know, in this case, I totally, you know, vouch for that. So, and that's something that I have seen in so many of the vegan artists I interviewed in this book, there is such a sense of joy and purpose more so than they ever had in their creative practice before they were vegan. I love that you are highlighting all these people who are artists who happen to be vegan and not necessarily doing vegan work per se. I mean, that's really important too. Yes. And yet I think there's so much to be said for going out into the world, having a reputation, ha having 
a work that people appreciate. And then, oh, by the way, did you know that person was vegan? Mm -hmm. And when you hear that somebody's vegan and you already like them or admire <laughs> them, it, it, it's uh, it's good for, for us. It's good for the cause. Definitely. So you interviewed 16 different artists, all kinds of genres, and yet there were some common benefits that they talked about from becoming vegan. What were some of those? Yes. So the thing that I hear most often is that people feel more energy and there's also a more consistent energy level throughout the day. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um, <laughs> I, so I also love to talk about, you know, a, a heightened sense of, of intellectual rigor, let's say. So I, I joke, I started joking that we vegans have paranormal abilities. And what I mean by that, and, and so actually um, there's a really great essay in um, the anthology Sista Vegan that came out from Lantern Books, you know, about 10 years ago. And, and it's it, and still like everyone should read that book. Um, you know, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful anthology. And so there's this great great essay by Adama Maweja, who is talking about the like intellectual leveling up or the leveling up of her critical thinking that she has experienced immediately after going vegan. So she talks about reading between the lines and being able to hear what isn't being said, you know, and making points that can't be countered. And this is something that after you go vegan, it's like, you know, they say like you've, you've exited the matrix. And so you can, yes. you can hear all of the, you know, all of the excuses and rationalizations that made sense to you before and they don't make sense to you now because you're committed to the truth of animal suffering. And so it's really, it's really interesting to think about, you know, all of the, you know, intellectual, you know, acrobatics and the contortionism that has to happen in order for things to make sense. You know, we talk about cognitive dissonance, um, and that's that's what that what what this is. But I mean, and I, I don't like to 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 talk about the elephant in the room because I feel like I'm like using the elephant, you know, in that uh, expression. But you know, everybody knows what that means. So you know, if you are the one person who sees the elephant in the room, and everyone else is like totally committed to not seeing it then you actually have creative power because there is such power in seeing what others are refusing to see because you have the opportunity to put words around that, right? Wow. Well, you delve into some of the psychological impediments to, to mm -hmm. creativity that you say are reinforced by our culture of animal cruelty. That is not something that most people think about. Can you riff on that a little bit? Yeah. So actually, I, and this is, I've quoted you, as you know, I have quoted you in my book because defeatism, like we have to talk about defeatism because I have heard so many times. Now this is the same, these are the same conversations in which I say, you know, to the bacon and cheese crowd, have you connected your diet to your creativity? Have you thought about moving towards plant-based eating? And so people, people will say, now these are my friends, these are my colleagues, they'll say, you know, well, we can't all be like you, Camille, which makes no sense. Like, why, why can't, why not? Like, why can't you be more like me? And I'm not saying that, you know, not to toot my own horn, but like, I'm offering you an idea and you're choosing not to look at it. Um, and so you have this great line in The Good Karma Diet, which I like quote all the time because I love it so much. You say um, something to the effect, effect of, you know, here you are created in the image and likeness of God, the Bible says, and yet you're brought to your knees by a scoop of French vanilla. And, you know, you're giving your power away like you're you're better than that. 
And so that's something that I try to address head on because we see this defeatism in our creative lives as well. You know, we find all kinds of excuses, all kinds of reasons for not following our creative ambitions um, because we're scared, you know, and moving towards veganism is a scary transition for most people um, because it requires a level of courage that, you know, it requires you to take on the dominant culture. But that is, you know, I, I consider it one of our primary jobs as artists. Like we are meant to question and critique the dominant culture. And the most fundamental expression of culture is food. Absolutely. In historical times, I'm thinking the 1950s and beatniks, and, and, and poets and, and creativity and connecting art with social justice. There, there was a, a community that, that was delineable and, and, and viewable and you knew who these people were. And nowadays when you talk about the, the mass culture and artists, I don't see the artists as standing out so much. Am I just not looking in the right places or have artists been more co-opted by the prevailing culture than they have been at perhaps other times in history. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I don't mean to be one of those people who's railing against capitalism, but I'm going to be one of those people who is railing against capitalism. I think that, you know, our, in order to, you know, have a profession, have a career as an artist, there is that economic pressure to commodify your work. And when you question the dominant culture, your work is less palatable, right? So I, I do, I do totally see what you're saying. And I think that, you know, most commercially successful artists today, certainly not, not all of them, but it seems that most of them do, they are, you know, packaging themselves, essentially pack packaging, um, their, their content, their creative content in a way that, um, you know, especially in this new culture of, you know, the endless scroll and, um, you know, always looking for the next online distraction. Um, I see a lot of creative people are creating for this market that, you know, the internet and, um, you know, Instagram and, and everything and everything is, you know, Instagrammable. And I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I would love to see more. I see the thing is like, I know that there are lots of artists. I mean, I've, as I said, you know, I've interviewed them, people who are doing their jobs as artists in questioning the dominant culture, but their work is not getting the level of recognition that it should be because that's not what our culture values. And so, you know, and I, I do feel like I kind of fall into that category, but you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you, you just have to keep, keep producing work that you feel in some sense doesn't exist yet, uh, that needs to exist. Um, and that you're, you know, you and your, you know, your comrades are the people who need to be bringing it into existence and, you know, doing their part to, to level up, uh, you know, level up the, the, the culture and, and humanity, you know, in general. Um, and this is that this actually brings me to, you know, an, another one of the psychological impediments to creativity, um, which is people will cling to tradition and they will hide behind tradition. But 
tradition and culture are fluid, right? Like we're always meant to be moving forward and moving upward. And so as I see it, you know, you have one or two choices, one of two choices as, as a, as a creative person, you can be one of those people who is helping to shape that kinder culture, that wiser culture, you know, or you can cling to a cruel and selfish way of life. Wow, that's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, people don't realize they're making it, but yes. you know, it's it's a it's a choice that you change. It's wait, wait, let's see, I'm trying to get that get that phrase right. It's a choice you make by changing nothing. So you choose mm. not to make the choice, and you've made the choice to conform. But, you know. Well, you have so bravely made the choice not to. You are definitely one of my creative gurus, absolutely, even though you're younger than my own daughter, but I look up to you like you're you know, <laughs> the wise old man that I traveled thousands of miles to find. And you, you are the quintessential writer. You, you, you came of age in the internet era, and yet you love books, and you love writing as a craft. So mm-hmm. just tell us about your life. Everybody's fascinating, but fascinated by the writer's life. I want to know about the writer's life of Camille DeAngelis. Oh, well, I guess, first of all, I should give a shout out to the Providence Athenaeum, which is the wonderful historic library where I wrote this book. It feels like going back in time. You feel like a time traveler as soon as you set foot inside because it was built in the late 1830s and like nothing has changed. (laughs) And so it's a, it's a wonderful space. It's such an inspiring space. And it was the perfect place. I mean, I even wrote about the library in the book. Uh, so when I am not, when I don't have a day job, I am at the Athenaeum um, or another, you know, another library, wherever I happen to be, um, you know, working on this book or my next novel or, you know, whatever I happen to be working on at the time. Um, but I do, you know, like most artists, um, you know, I, I do sometimes have day jobs. So I am currently on my lunch break. Um, and I think it's important to talk about that. I've written about it a little bit, but I think it's important for us to be really candid about, um, you know, how well our careers are or aren't going. Cause I do, I do feel like there is quite a bit of posturing, um, and people will, you know, act as if things are going better than they are. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So that's why I felt like as soon as you asked me this question, I was like, I'm definitely going to tell you that I am on my lunch break at, you know, my wonderful temp job, which I'm enjoying very much. Uh, But, you know, if I had, you know, if I were selling a bajillion copies of my books, then yeah, I would be writing full time today, but I'm not. And that's okay. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's part of my, I do, I do consider myself a spiritual person and I do, you know, want to see myself as being on a spiritual path. And part of that practice for me right now is to accept where I am and, and, and to be okay with that. Um, and not to feel as if I have failed by, you know, not being on the New York Times bestseller list, because that's, you know, number one, that's not in my control. And I mean, of course, I've written about this in Life Without Envy. Um, But also, you know, the I mean, these these things are these things are out of my hands. And the 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 culture is such that I just don't know that, you know, my work is is what people are what, you know, 
people as in mo you know most people you know the book buying public at large is is necessarily looking for but i do think that i mean at least i'm trying to write books that need to exist that sh that you know the bo books that i feel should already exist that's the key at, at that new york times bestseller list oh my gosh I kind of wish it didn't exist. I know. Because it causes so <laughs> many of us to, to doubt ourselves. And I think doubt for a writer leads to block. And that that's a problem. But I love that you write at the Athenaeum. And if it, listeners, if you don't know about the Athenaeum, there may well be one in your city. I, I mm. know that there is or there at least was when I lived there, beautiful one in, in Kansas City. I, I, these were women's clubs, weren't they, in the beginning? I, at least the Providence Athenaeum was, was not, it was, you know, founded as a membership library, but anyone could come in, which is not true of the Boston Athenaeum. Um, they pride themselves on being really welcoming and inclusive. Like they will even welcome your canine companions. They have, they keep, it's so cute. They keep a jar of doggy biscuits behind the circulation desk. Um, so yeah, you can, you can see why I love that place. Oh, I, I can imagine. Well, it's so important to, to write somewhere beautiful. I remember mm. several years ago, I was in London and uh, Carol Adams, author of, of the sexual politics of meat was there at the same time. And we went to write in this amazing room at the British museum. Ooh. I mean, I, I remembered that day, you know, <laughs> like 15 years because it's really magical. So what, what for you, Camille, is important about writing in the right place? Well, I, I would like to say that I, I can write anywhere, um, but it's true. It is easier to write in a space that is really inspiring. I like to write being surrounded by other people's books. I like to have an old-fashioned desk. I like to, it's nice to be able to look out. So there's a, a mezzanine level and you can look out over the rest of the library. And it's really, you know, if, if you're feeling like you need a little bit of a, you know, a, ch a change, a little, um, you know, a little break from what you're working on, you can always just look up and sort of do some people watching. But um, oh. yeah, I mean, you know, I'll write, I'll write on the train or, you know, I sometimes write in bed. <laughs> Um, you know, or on the on the couch with some coffee, you know, so I, I do write everywhere, but I do prefer to write at the library. Yeah, well, and it, it shows in, in your writing. You're an exquisite writer. Everyone, please get to know Camille DeAngelis. The new book is A Bright, Clean Mind. You might also want to check out Life Without Envy, Ego Management for Creative People, and Camille's wonderful, wonderful young adult novels that older adults like too, <laughs> the boy from tomorrow and bones and all Camille you're you're working now I know we only have a few seconds left but I do want to let people know that the books just keep on coming you have a <laughs> novel about adult time travel and yes. also a nonfiction progress about practical essays that refute the idea that veganism equals deprivation and yes. you're going to talk about cheese and chocolate and <laughs> sex and romance. Only you would think of such a thing. Bless, <laughs> you. Bless your work. Thank you so much for taking this time today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Victoria. It's always a pleasure. All the best. Everybody stay with us. We've got Jane Velez Mitchell coming. Jane Unchained.
We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back to the Main Street Vegan program. I do want to do a shout out to our sponsor, the good folks of alpineorganics.co. They make a couple of amazing supplements which complement the best diet on earth. That would be ours. And those supplements are called Complement, which is B12, D3, and the fully formed omega-3 fatty acids, and Complement Plus, which includes those things, plus some of the other nutrients that it's possible to be missing, even eating the way we do. These are nutrients including selenium and iodine, magnesium, vitamin K2, zinc, So do check out these wonderful products made by vegans for vegans at alpineorganics.co. And if you want to get some for yourself, then you just put Main Street Vegan in all caps for regular complement, the little spray, the D3, B12, and omega-3s. Or if you want the full supplement capsules with all that good stuff, that's called Compliment Plus, and your discount code becomes Main Street Vegan with a plus sign. So, to your health. I am so excited to be introducing my next, next guest. It's been several years since she's been on the program, and my goodness, she has been busy since then. Jane Velez Mitchell is the founder and editor of Jane Unchained News, a nonprofit digital news network reporting on animal rights, veganism, health, and climate change. With more than 70 volunteer contributors around the world, Jane Unchained's videos were viewed in 2018 17.6 million times. And she just directed a Jane Unchained News documentary. Countdown to Year Zero, available exclusively on Amazon Prime Video, which lays out animal agriculture's leading role in climate change and how we must transition to a plant-based culture by 2026 or face ecological apocalypse. Jane Velez Mitchell, no apocalypse is happening on your watch. You are a powerhouse. Welcome to the program. Delighted to be here, Victoria. Well, it is wonderful to even be in the same planet with you, on the same planet with you, much less uh, talking with you on the program. There is something that you sent to me that I think is so thrilling. You say that the mission at Jane Unchained is to normalize veganism and nonviolence and help our culture hit the tipping point at which veganism becomes the norm, not the exception. I love the idea of normalized nonviolence. Tell us about that. Well, I wish I could say I invented that, but Dr. Silas Rao, who is the subject of my documentary, Countdown to Year Zero, is the man who has declared that we're going to create a vegan world by 2026. And so I loved that concept when I first heard him 
he was speaking in a field at the Rowdy Girl Sanctuary in Texas, which is a former cattle ranch turned into a veganic animal sanctuary. And he said, look, uh, when John F. Kennedy said we're going to put on a man in the moon, uh, people laughed. When people said we were going to have gay marriage, people laughed. Uh, there's a lot of examples of things that seemed impossible that in a very short period of time became possible. And he is a Stanford Ph.D. He was instrumental in accelerating the Internet speeds. And so what he's using is the same methodology that uh, took the Internet from something that nobody knew how to work and thought we'll never use that to something everybody thinks they can't live without for five minutes. And that happened in a very short time, in approximately you know, eight years. And so he wants to do the same thing with veganism and says if we don't do that, we're basically doomed. So um, he makes a very, very strong argument, and in fact, uh, he just completed a white paper that shows that animal agriculture is responsible for, are you sitting down, 87% of greenhouse gas emissions, and that the most important thing is to look at animal agriculture and that our obsessive uh, fascination and focus on fossil fuels to the almost exclusion of all else is really if our house is on fire, as Greta Thunberg says, looking for the wrong exit. The exit from this calamity that is engulfing the world is animal agriculture. It is, we already know, the leading cause of deforestation, habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, and human disease. And he has made a very strong case with citations that it is also the leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions, Methane, primarily animal agriculture, is being underestimated by the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and fossil fuels, which is primarily coal and gasoline, is being overestimated. So what he's saying is that uh, the animal agriculture industry has its thumb on the scale. Uh, all these statistics come from the UNFAO, uh, which is primarily the information that the animal agriculture industry is inputting and therefore it's being missed we're getting a misdiagnosis you know we're getting a misdiagnosis of what is ailing our planet you can watch cable news going on and on and on even progressive liberal cable news about uh, climate change and have climate change festivals that go on for days and they never mention animal agriculture or if they do they mention in passing or they mention that we should focus less on it and so um what we're really trying to do, and I'm already working on a second documentary, a follow-up documentary, is try to shift the focus uh, toward uh, animal agriculture as the primary problem. And uh, the problem is that the powers that be don't want to look at it. The powers that be are still eating animals. They don't want to have to look in the mirror. Uh, they'd rather point the finger at government. And the, the real tragic part about that is that switching to a plant-based diet is something we can all do. If, if, Let's say a miracle occurred and tomorrow we were all plant-based. We could start reforesting the huge chunk of usable land on this planet, the largest chunk that is being used for cattle grazing land and for growing crops to feed the 70 billion approximately land animals that we kill every year. We're only 7.7 .7 billion humans, and we're killing something like 70 billion. The estimates, some, some say it's 56, some say it's 100, but animals are eating a lot more food than we are. And it's the most inefficient food source. So what we need to do is transition to a plant-based diet. Globally, 80% approximately of what humans eat is already plant-based. Now with plant-based alternatives like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, 
we can make that transition without sacrifice. We've got just eggs. You can make a scrambled egg that people can't tell the difference. You can have vegan cheeses. You can have vegan meats. Uh, so we're making it as easy as possible uh, for people to make that transition. But the infrastructure, the power structure, is really dependent on this idea of a zero-sum game. That's the old thinking. Uh, it's artificial scarcity. So if we, if, if we all went to a plant-based diet, we'd have plenty of food to feed everybody on the planet. And that scares people because in order to make a profit, you have to create some kind of scarcity. If it's universally available, how are you going to make money on it? So animal agriculture creates artificial scarcity because animals eat 40 times what they produce as meat or dairy. So essentially, we have an old system that needs to evolve to a new system. And it, every, you know what they say, the only thing that has to change is everything. So we have to change our thinking. We have to start looking at animal agriculture as the violence that it is. And we have to stop giving that industry a pass, which is what pretty much everybody in power is doing right now. And so uh, if you want to know why, just look at the TV commercials. Turn on any advertiser-based television, and you'll see advertisements for meat, dairy, and pharmaceuticals, the three industries that would collapse if people switched to a plant-based diet. So you can't make money off a disease you never had. You can't make money off a stent operation you never performed because the person didn't need it. You can't sell pills to people who don't have erectile dysfunction and high cholesterol. So unfortunately, our profit centers are built up on death, disease, and destruction. Death for the animals, disease for humans, destruction for the planet. We need to switch our entire culture to come up with a new model or we're not going to be around anymore. And one of the things that I really hope Dr. Rao and others, I hope he gets other scientists on board because uh, here's the thing. It's very short-sighted thinking. These people who have billions and billions of dollars and wealth inequality also fits right into this. Uh, our system is completely unsustainable. And as Dr. Rao says, they're factory farming the farmers, and they're not even really farmers anymore. They're warehouse owners, you know, concentrated animal feeding operations where animals are kept in these windowless uh, warehouses and uh, people have to put on masks to go in because the urine smell and toxicity is so great. And these, these poor farmers so-called farmers are being put in onerous loans uh, and so they're, they're factory farm too and so are the consumers. They need us to get sick so they can sell us the pills. So the entire system has become completely unsustainable and we have to start looking at everything differently. Uh, we have to start looking at the currency system and we have to start democratizing uh, our system so that wealth doesn't get concentrated in the hands of the 0.1% um, and whatever percentage up there that owns more than 90% of the rest of the human race. And uh, so it's, it goes hand in hand. And so it's a complicated issue to a certain degree, but it's very simple in one sense. If we all just stopped eating animals and their byproducts, the entire world would immediately evolve and we would stop exploiting people as well. So Countdown to Year Zero is the documentary just tell us a little bit, Jane, about why this particular approach, why Dr. Rao, I know you are an animal rights activist, and I'm finding it interesting that animal rights people are really opening up to the environment. I spent Saturday at the Montefiore Cardiac Wellness Conference, the third annual, all physicians, researchers talking primarily about heart disease, other health issues, 
and they were talking about the environment. So making this connection is really exciting to me. How did it come about for you, and why did you choose this topic for your film? Well, I chose the topic because, as Greta Thunberg said, our house is on fire. And essentially, you're seeing the powers that be saying, hey, the exit is this way, fossil fuels. And there's a lot of evidence to point to, no, the exit's that, that away, methane, which primarily comes from animal agriculture. I mean, it comes from some other things as well. And I'm not a scientist. I'm translating. My role has been to translate Dr. Rao's scientific knowledge into people terms that people can understand. And that's what I've done for 40 years as a journalist. So that's, that's what I do. So please don't confuse me with a scientist. I'm, I'm basically dumbing it down, so to speak. Uh, you know, uh, climate change for dummies. And uh, we want scientists to back up all this information, which, please don't keep the door open, um, which, um, you know, they have to do. And the, the problem is that a lot of people have vested interests. So we remember back in 2006 when Livestock's Long Shadow came out, which said essentially that 18% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, could be directed and tied to animal agriculture. Then in 2009, uh, World Bank economists uh, with the World Watch Institute came out with another report that said 51% of greenhouse gases can be tied to animal agriculture. All of a sudden, it went down to 14.5%. What happened? What happened is that we are miscalculating, and the people who are in charge of providing all the statistics are miscalculating. So you have the New York Times. There's, there's opinion pieces in the New York Times where they're saying 14.5%. Now, let's consider the possibility that that is wrong. If it's wrong, it's like going to a doctor with a, with a life-threatening illness and being misdiagnosed. And so none of us are going to be around if we continue to misdiagnose this issue. And so there's a, there's a sense of, wow, time is running out, the clock is ticking, we need to deal with this immediately. And um, unfortunately, our society is also set up for very short-term thinking. So all the corporations just care about the next quarter, the next quarter. It's our job to get to some of these big leaders, the brilliant minds that are behind, for example, the new technologies, um, and convince them, look, it doesn't matter how much your next quarter uh, profit growth is, if life is uninhabitable, if it's too hot for people to exist on this planet, your quarterly profits will mean nothing. If, if floods engulf the coastal cities, there's no tourism. I mean, it, put it in people terms. I was at the Alamo. I was in uh, Texas, and I, I had a few hours, and I said, oh, I'm going to go to visit the Alamo. And it, I was carrying a, a little suitcase, and it was so hot. I said, I can't, do, I can't walk the five blocks. This is just too damn hot. What kind of tourism are we going to have when it's, you know, 118 degrees? In parts of India, it's gotten way higher than that. And we're having extreme drought. There are cities in India that have no water. And, of course, the rich get the water, the poor don't. And this is going to sweep the globe. And you think we have an immigration crisis right now. Wait till uh, good portions of uh, uh, continents are uninhabitable. And, you know, the immigration crisis we face right now is an environmental crisis. Finally, somebody at the New York Times went down there and, and t actually talked to people. They always talk about crime and gangs. They can't subsist on their land anymore. These people were subsistence farmers who would have a piece of land, grow their crops, eat their food, and live down there, and the climate is not temperate anymore. It goes from drought to high winds to extreme rains. 
they can't grow their crops, and it's happening here in the United States as well. Farmers are uh, are experiencing it. So you're having, um, you know, really uh, an unfolding crisis right before our eyes. The problem is that if you can't see it, touch it, feel it, or smell it, a lot of people don't believe it. And even when they see it, even when their own house is literally burning, they don't want to look at their diet as the reason why. I'll give you an example. After Hurricane Florence, and of course uh, in North Carolina, there are all these um, there are all these CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, where the animals were left inside to drown. Imagine that. Imagine the moral bankruptcy of a society that allows uh, hundreds of thousands of animals to remain inside warehouses to drown because they don't want the bad PR of seeing the floating bodies of pigs and chickens. Uh, because the previous time they opened the the doors and there there was a lot of video and coverage of animals floating around in the water. So those animals are considered live inventory. That is the term they use, and they just restock it. And the U.S. government will subsidize the restocking of these, these warehouses after floods. And so what we did is we got a, hastily gathered a coalition of environmental and animal rights groups together to hold a news conference after Hurricane Florence down there in the Carolinas and say, hey, we want to halt to all CAFOs, concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, in the wake of this hurricane until we can look at the impacts and look at what's going on. The news media showed up. They all recorded it. None of them published it. I kept calling down there, and the woman's like, well, yeah, I've been watching the news. I don't see anything. I don't see anything online. They didn't publish it. You know what they did publish? What? A meat barbecue for the victims. A meat <sighs> barbecue for the victims. So, you know, this is the mentality that we are dealing with. We're willful denial. And then when we get upset, because, you know, you ask politely and nothing happens, then you raise your voice a little more, then we're told, shut up. You're a radical extremist. You know, it, it's it's really uh, it, 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 it defies logic and it defies description. But the truth is that humans are not rational beings; we're emotional beings, and we're also the society is very conditioned to eat animals, and so they've subliminally associated eating animals with men with masculinity, even though eating animals causes erectile dysfunction. And thank God there are films like The Game Changers that are showing. Uh, why uh, a plant-based diet is uh, actually the manliest diet you can have. Uh, we also, at Jane Unchained News Network, which, by the way, you can check it out on janeunchained.com, and it will lead, lead you right to my Facebook page. We do a daily live vegan cooking show. In fact, as soon as I'm done here, I'm going to go to Burbank and do uh, a cooking show with some folks. But we had two bodybuilders here the other day, they are ripped. They are ginormous. One's a former football player. He grew up as a hunter, and he woke up, and now he's vegan. And he says his recovery times, you know, his, his athleticism, I mean, he's just he, he's the epitome of manliness. He's a rippling with muscles. So what we also try to do is show people that all this conditioning, that, you know, you have these, these, these people who in the advertising world, they're – they don't want to do movies. They don't want to do commercials, you know, and uh, they have these meetings. Do you think they ever discuss whether the product that they're promoting is good or not? No, it's never been discussed. They get a job, they pitch for it, they get a job, and they do whatever they can to um, you know, uh, 
we need authenticity. We don't. You know, I, I've listened to the calls. I know what I know what they do, and they're expert at conjuring up, you know, femininity and motherhood for dairy when it's actually the opposite of that. It's it's a rape, abduction, and murder operation where cows have to be forcibly impregnated, uh, which last time I checked is called rape, and then their babies are abducted from them so we can steal their mother's milk. But if you say so, oh, oh, radical. <laughs> No, we're, we're told to pretend that all that stuff is not happening. There are horrible times in human history where you could probably do the, do the connection and think about societies that are told this suffering, these, the suffering of these people, the suffering of these beings doesn't count. That's what we're told. We're even told you can be an animal lover. Everybody's running around with their dogs saying they're animal lovers while they're eating bacon. And, and dogs are so much smarter than bacon. So... You know, luckily, I think that there is change in the wind. And one of the things that gave me hope, first of all, if you want to achieve something, you have to say what you want to achieve. So when I heard Dr. Rao say, we're going to have a vegan world by 2026, I said, hallelujah. It reminds me of the women who stopped the troubles in Northern Ireland. Their kid was shot on a front lawn. They walked outside. They said, enough, we're going to stop the troubles. And everybody laughed at them. And they said, you know, if you're going to achieve something, you have to at least articulate first what you want. If you don't even have the vision to articulate it, how are you going to achieve it? So when I heard Dr. Rao say, we're going to have a vegan world, and we're going to have it, and then he put a by when, because you all know nothing happens without a deadline. You know, if you write a book or anything you're doing, if you don't have a deadline, you don't get it done. And we're going to do it by 2026. And then the third component that he brought in is methodology. And here's how we're going to do it. And we're going to use the same methodology they, they took to take the Internet and make it ubiquitous, and we are going to do that same methodology. So I've been to Arizona where he's based twice now for conferences where they take all the questions that have to be answered in order to create a plant-based economy, and they divide it up into task forces, and then they have people addressing those questions uh, remotely. And everybody can join. It's fascinating. And whatever your skill is, we have engineers, we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have scientists, we have uh, media people, you can go into the task force that is best for you. And you can just go to climatehealers.org. The white paper is there that he completed. And um, you can also go to veganworld2026.org. But it's, you can get in either way, and you can sign up for a task force, and you can be part of the solution. And, yes, we have to figure out how do we take you know, dairies and turn them into making milk from almonds or cashews? How do we take chicken farms and turn them into mushroom farms? How do we start growing pea protein, which is the – commonality in a lot of these new products, these meat alternatives, and grow that on a mass scale, and how do we compress them and extract what we need? There's so many questions that need to be answered, uh, but we can answer those questions. You know, human beings are very smart when we want to be. I think what's holding us back is we need a cultural shift, and that is happening, but it's very hard to see it in real time. You know, we all know that Beyond Meat was the most successful initial public offering since the 2008 financial crisis. Yes, it's come back to earth a little bit, but it woke everybody up. Suddenly, CNBC is talking about meat alternatives. And what's really ironic is, representing the old system so much, they never talked about health when, when meat products were in the news. They don't talk about whether the hamburgers being sold in fast food restaurants are healthy for you or not. But the second Beyond Meat came up, oh, well, this is processed. And it's not even healthier than uh, meat products. And, 
they started spewing all this misinformation as if they're doctors and scientists, which they're not. Okay, so yes, meat alternative products are healthier than meat. The World Health Organization has determined that processed meat is officially carcinogenic. That's bacon, that's hot dogs, that's deli slices. Processed meat is cancer-causing. So did they ever discuss that before Beyond Meat came up or even when Beyond Meat came up? No. But suddenly they're trying to equate processed, in other words, meat alternatives that are packaged to look like meat, uh, as processed, therefore not healthy. Uh, so the system is aligned against us, but the truth is that um, – the change is happening. And when you see Burger King with uh, an impossible Whopper and uh, you see a, a Subway with uh, its uh, vegan meatballs and Dunkin' Donuts with its – and the lines are around the block, you know that people are waking up. And when enough people wake up, and there's various arguments about what percentage of the population needs to wake up. I don't know whether it's 3.5% or 6% or, or 2%. I don't know that. I think there's been various books written about things like that, like Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Tipping Point. But at a certain point, it's going to shift. And then people will stop being so threatened by meat alternatives. And uh, it's going to happen. It's just a question of, will it happen in time? Uh, we only have seven years left before we will have killed virtually all wild animals on this planet. We've killed... I mean, a million species are threatened with extinction. We're, we are destroying the habitats to create grazing land for cattle and cropland to feed farm animals. So we need to shift rapidly, and that is the issue. It's a race against time. Well, this film is one of the things that is going to help us win that. So is Jane Unchained. In our last 30 seconds, do you still need help with Jane Unchained? What can we do to help? Well, you know, we're a nonprofit. Uh, go to janeunchained.com slash donate and donate. We have an eight-episode vegan cooking show that we're shooting next week that's going on a major platform. We still have $20,000 to raise. Um, it's, doesn't, it's not cheap. We're, we're going to a great production facility. We've got great vegan chefs and social media influencers. It's taping soon. You know, I'm working on that today. And eight episodes on a major platform. It's going to be all over the place. And it's not a moneymaker. We're doing this. It's a money pit, frankly, but, you know, great. So chip <laughs> in. Go to janeunchained.com slash donate and chip in. Whether it's $100 or $5,000, uh, we need your help. And I think some people will really want to help because you have put your entire heart, soul, and life into this. And I think all of us listening who are vegans are so, so grateful. Thank you so much, Jane Velez Mitchell, and to our earlier guest, Camille DeAngelis. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. Everybody, be blessed, be healthy, be happy, be vegan. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to ignite your best life and illuminate the world? I'm Stephanie James. I'm a motivational speaker, transformation coach, and psychotherapist. And what lights me up is helping people just like you create the greatest versions of themselves. On my podcast, Igniting the Spark, I will help you ignite your joy and reach new heights in your personal and professional life. 
Join me for some incredible conversations with authors, spiritual teachers, and other influential thought leaders to help guide you on your way. If you are ready to stop playing small, join me for Igniting the Spark on the mindbodyspirit.fm network or wherever you get your podcasts and ignite your best life.